tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Here we are again, delving into the the murky depths of of classical history in the Bible. Well, uh, well, they are kind of murky. You never know what's going on with ancient history. But that said, let's pray. That will help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created. You shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the feast of uh, St. Irenaeus, the memorial of St. Irenaeus of Lyon. He was a Greek who was the bishop of a city in what is today southern France, and he is the earliest clear indication of the primacy of the See of Rome, the bishopric of Rome, uh, in his against her- heresies, Adversus Heresis, he says that every church must agree with the See of Rome. And that's kind of interesting because he wrote about, well, I want to say 180 AD, around then. And he was a student of, oh, if I'm remembering my old school days, uh, he was a student of, Polycarp was a student of St. John. And uh, so this is real close to the, the origins of the church and the idea that the Sea of Peter, the the by sea we we S E E. It's a sort of short form of sede, uh, which means the chair of Saint Peter. That the chair of Saint Peter had a, a a preeminence that early. That's interesting. This isn't a medieval uh, um, uh, fabrication. Much has been added to the papacy, especially in modern times, but. But it's a real thing, and it's this uh, this primacy of Peter is a real Bible thing, and the feast of Saint Irenaeus is big for me because I have a great debt to Sister Mary Agnes Cunningham, who is one of the great great women of uh, uh, my education. She she introduced me to the fathers of the church and uh, just recently celebrated her hundredth birthday and. Uh, I don't know if anyone's listening who knows Mother Mary Agnes. If so, give her my love. She's would a you great like to live woman. to a hundred, Father? But uh, would I? Was that live? Your voice in my head? Yes, this was live. <laughs> would I like to live to a hundred? You know, Saint Paul gave the right answer. Uh, it's better to be dissolved than be with Christ. But if one can serve the Lord, it's a funny thing about getting older. 
uh, you have less and less investment in this world. You know, so many people that you love have gone before you. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I would like to live to be 100, but if I can serve the Lord and do some good here, I'm I'm willing to go through it. It's it's a tough gig to be 100. I I have a cousin who's 102 and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, but it's about, you know, I, I, I always thought that was kind of pious of St. Paul uh, when I would hear that, it, uh, you know, when he would say, well, if I die, I go to be with the Lord. If I'm here, I can be of service to you. But the older I get, the more I realize it does make sense. You know, that this, this, this life is, it's meant to be a temporary arrangement. Um, uh, and, and when we don't treat it that way, we, we become very frustrated, I think. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. And we're talking about uh, um, Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. Abram means the high father. Ram means high, and Ab means father. Abraham is translated as the father of many nations. Um I always had difficulty seeing that in the Hebrew, but that's what we're told. So the Lord transformed him. We're in Genesis, the 15th chapter. And of course, it's abbreviated. So I want to go to the full chapter. Um, sometime afterward, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Uh, Do not fear, I'm your, sh- I'm your shield. I will make your reward very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me if I die childless and have only a servant of my household, Eliezer of Damascus? This is interesting because we believe that he uh, uh, already had a son, uh, an illegitimate son. Well, no, I think this is before the illegit- this is before the birth of Elisha. I take it back. I believe, Lord, you've given me no offspring, so servant of my household will be my heir. Uh, the word of the Lord came to him that one will not be your heir. You will own offspring. Your own offspring will be your heir. And then he took him outside, look up and count the stars if you can. Just so, he added, will your descendants be? Now, let's jump down a little bit. Um, uh, He says to the Lord, how will I know that I will possess this land? And the Lord said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, split them in two, placed each half opposite the other, but the birds he did not cut up. Birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Abram scared them away. What is going on here? This was a covenant sacrifice. In other words, you you split these animals in two, and you put one half here and one half over there, and the covenanting people walked between these carcasses. It sounds a little grisly to us. But it was a, it was a ritual sacrifice, and what you were saying was, "May this happen to me if I if I abandon my covenant." So God and Abram were to walk between these carcasses. So um, then it goes on, as the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. A great dark dread descended upon him. The Lord said to Abram, "Know for certain that your descendants will reside in a land not their own, where they shall be enslaved." You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace, and in the fourth generation your descendants will return here. And when the sun was set and it was dark, there appeared a smoking firepot, a flaming torch, which passed between those pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your descendants I will give this land. All right. Did you notice something interesting? In verse 5, God takes Abram outside and says, Look at the sky and count the stars if you can. 
just so he added, will your descendants be? That's verse 5. And then uh, um, he says in verse 12, as the sun was about to sleep, to set, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Now, Abram had done all this work between this this command of God, go out and count the stars, if you can. And then seven verses later, the sun sets, Abram falls asleep. Has it occurred to you that Abram was told to go out and count the stars when it was broad daylight? If you can. You know, the stars are there whether you can see them or not. Obscured by the light of the sun during the day, you can't see the stars, but they're still up there shining. The stars are there whether you can see them or not. This, to me, is an important part of this story. We look at the circumstances of our life and we think, oh, well, things are not working out. The story isn't over yet. This is an important thing. God made a covenant with Abram, and you can count on the covenant that we make with God. You you see, every mass we go to is a renewal of our covenant with God, that it is a a bloody, uh, well, it's an unbloody representation of a bloody sacrifice, the sacrifice of Calvary. And God is saying in the crucifixion of Christ, this is the extent of my love for you. And how often I tell you, it is so foolish when people say, well, I don't get a lot out of Mass. Who told you you were supposed to get something out of Mass? You go to Mass not to get, but to give. You're saying when you take the Holy Eucharist that as he puts his body, blood, soul, and divinity on this altar for the salvation of the world, I put my body, blood, soul, and humil- and humanity on this altar in union with him. In other words, we're volunteering to die with Christ when we go to Mass. We are entering into a blood covenant with God through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You don't go to Mass to get something. You go to Mass to give something, to give your life to Christ. And every time you go to Mass, especially every time you receive the, the Blessed Eucharist, you are renewing that covenant. So uh, this is this is what we're doing. We're we're renewing the covenant with Abraham, and then uh, we'll see later that that when God asked him to sacrifice uh, uh, his only legitimate son, well, God did that for us. He sacrificed his only begotten son for love of us. This is a profound thing. We are not in a religion that is 2,000 years old. We're in a religion that is well closer to 4,000 years old. We believe that the mass is the fulfillment of the binding of Isaac, the sacrifice of Abraham, which we will see later in the text. So it's very profound. Well, let's go to the gospel. Let's go to the gospel real quickly. Where did I put the gospel? Let me click there. And now we'll go to the gospel. I think I've told you this, that um, um, lo and behold, um, uh, the, uh, um, what was I, the the train of my thought just derailed, but uh, it'll come to me. Good grief. Good grief. Amen. You know, that this... uh, this sacrifice of Abraham. Oh, that's what it is. In the Our Father, when you say, Hallowed be thy name, 
how in, in Latin it's sanctificetur nomen tuum. May your name be sanctified. How can I sanctify the the name of God, the authority of God? Well, this is this is uh, definitely a tangent. Uh, well, let's let's make that the word of the day today because it's, it's worth devoting some time to. Let's go to the gospel, uh, Matthew the seventh chapter, the fifteenth to the twentieth verse. Jesus said to his disciples, "Beware of fa- false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but underneath are ravenous." wolves by their fruits you shall know them do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles a good tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a rotten tree bear good fruit every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire so by their fruits you shall know them well i think a lot of times we think of fruit as well they're the ones who brought in the most money at the bake sale, or they're the ones who are on all the committees, or they're the ones who who have converted the most people. I remember there was a, a church that would send buses into the neighborhood to pick up uh, all these Puerto Rican kids and tell them they were going to have a free lunch and go to a swimming pool. Well, they would take them to this uh, church, a big church in another state, and baptize them, and... Uh, uh, I give them a cheese sandwich. And the person who saved the most souls, who brought the most souls in, uh, the uh, they I think they won something like a car at the end of the year. That's not fruit. That's lunacy. Uh, so I don't know if that place still exists, but it still does that. Uh, who knows? So, well, let's let's look at the holy at the at the uh, at this idea of fruit. In the scriptures, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, the uh, the, the Catholic fruits of the Holy Spirit, there are more of them. Uh, that I remember Archbishop Vlasny, when I commented on this, said, well, you left a few out. Well, he was right, of course. We talk about the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the Catholic sense. But what, what we're doing is it's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, uh, uh, long-suffering, mildness, faith, modesty, that, that um, some of these Latin words imply two things. So we, we translate them kind of doubly. So uh, that's why that happens. So moving along here. Those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus says uh, that by their fruits you will know them, you know, uh, oh, he's a really powerful speaker. Is he really kind speaker? <laughs> you know, what is he? Oh, he's, he's miracles. I remember there was a, a church, um, uh, uh, an Assembly of God church that everybody was going to in, in, in one of my parishes. And um I went to it also, and uh, uh, it was just to see what was going Good on. Grief. And it was um, uh, really, it was really a oh, good grief. Is right. <laughs> I was, uh, I went to this church, and and um, uh, oh, there are miracles happening there. And then he announced that poor fellow, the collections they'd taken up for him, the love offerings had all been stolen. So we had to do it all again. He was such a fraud, but 
the scripture doesn't say by their miracles you will know them. That's why in the Catholic Church, you have to have two post-mortem miracles, post-death miracles in the canonization process, because you can work miracles in this world and still, well, I suppose the word is, uh, dis, you can still disappoint the Lord. So I, I think that that's a really important uh, understanding. Uh, it, the scripture doesn't say, by their miracles you shall know them, but by their fruits you shall know them. When someone's working miracles, they pack the church. And, you know, instead of saying, oh, this pastor is really, really got a lot of self-control and charity and and joy, um, that doesn't pack the pews. It's uh, We've got it all wrong. So by their fruits you shall know them, love, peace, patience, joy, etc., all right. Um, let us, uh, I think uh, we can pause here and go to a break. And we will come back very shortly. And unfortunately, today is a, well, not unfortunately, fortunately, it depends on your perspective. It's a letter show. I can't take calls. I've got so many letters. And so we're doing one more letter show. But I think probably tomorrow we'll come back to the regular format. All right. Be back in a moment. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, invites you to check out The Quest, a five-episode video series on discovering our purpose and living it with courage. Start watching The Quest for free at relevantradio.com slash quest. Well, you rock my soul. How, I ask you. Could we talk about Abram slash Abraham these past days without without listening to Elvis, the king, sing Bosom of Abraham? There you go. All right, let us go now to letters. Oh, there's the trumpet. And again, I apologize. I I won't be taking calls today. We'll do a, it's a letter show, but those are fun. All right. And by the way, if if you sent me a letter and he hasn't read my letter yet. I get a lot of letters. So the best way to get your letter read is to make it short to the point. Make your question, this is my question. You know, a lot of people write these long epistles about what's going on, and I can't find the question in them. So, um, you know, uh, and I get a lot of advertising. So I, I get lots and lots of letters. So the best way is make it short, precise, and this is my question. That's a good a good place to put something, uh, and that 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 will help. And and be persistent. If if I can't answer it, then send it again. Okay, uh, this is from Chris in uh, Gosh Grelickville, Minnesota. Is that Grelickville? Yeah, I think so. Garlicville. I imagine during. No, not Garlicville. So the Grelickville. Garlicville's in California. I got relatives there. It's a lovely town. All right. I imagine during Jesus' lifetime, it was very dark. No streetlights, light bulbs. In my artificially lit world, I take light for granted, and God also. This is really good. God helped me see through this artificial world. I try to recall the image from the song, He's got the whole world in his hands. Lord, help us to see the world through your light. That's a good a good insight. And yes, it was dark. It is very interesting that the, uh, the, the three... Uh, 
so-called Abrahamic faiths, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, uh, arose in the desert, though Christianity arose on the edge of the desert. Uh, but Jesus spent time in the desert. I don't know if you've ever been in a desert, but at night it is brilliantly light because of the stars. And if there's a moon out, it's even more brilliantly lit. So it's, 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 it's this magical light. And our eyes, uh, when we are in a city, become accustomed to the street lights. So we see, in a sense, it's actually darker at night, at least in my experience, um, because our eyes are used to these bright lights. And then we look at the lights that are not so bright and they're kind of dark but yeah it was it was dark that 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 life revolved around the 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 movement of the sun once upon a time and um it's a different experience if you've never been in a desert at night it's it's worth a vacation uh i live in a place that has relatively little light pollution and on a cold winter night the sky is brilliant with stars and i think you know the prayer is the lifting of the heart and mind to god and we talk about the heavens. And in Greek, the word for heaven is exactly the same as the word for sky. You know, the kingdom of the sky. But what? Uh, we think of heaven as this sort of place that's, well, somewhere out there. The word means sky. Uranos means sky. And we talk about the sky willing, uh, the kingdom of the sky, uh, that sort of thing. But... Uh, when you're in a desert, you just, at night, you can't help but look up at the beauty of the stars. So that's an interesting thought. It was very dark, and it was also very light in a different kind of way. There was a, a light that drew you up uh, instead of focused you on this earth. You understand what I mean? Sometimes uh, the bright lights of a city make us think that this is what there is. This is reality. This is all there is. But when you're in a desert or, or a country place and there's no no unnatural light, you're just drawn skyward and you see this magnificence. So there you go. All right. Um, let's go to another one. Let me erase that one. Um, uh, let's see. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's see. This is one that I want to do. I'll make this short. Okay, bless you. See, they this know. This is uh, from S Steve in Texas. Uh, I heard, uh, I learned, I heard the other day, you're answering someone's question on why there are purple veils on the statue starting the fifth Sunday of Lent. My question is related to this, but it is specifically focused on Good Friday. My wife and I attended a passion reenactment on the grounds of the Sacred Heart Church in Waco. But when we attended the Good Friday service, the large crucifix was still veiled in purple. This has always struck me as odd. Why on Good Fridays of all days is the main crucifix covered, while on nearly every other Sunday it's on full display, except the last two Sundays of Lent? I totally get why everything else is covered, but I still believe it should still be covered on, it should, I, I believe they should still be covered on Good Friday. But I think it makes more sense that the crucifix isn't covered. If you could set, shed some light on this, I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Well, Steve, we do uncover the cross 
on Good Friday. It's called uh, The Veneration of the Cross. Behold the wood of the cross on which hung the Savior of the world. Come, let us worship. In other words, we concentrate on the cross in the liturgy of the day, which we used to call the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified. That sounds very mystical, but it simply meant that we we consumed uh, the Eucharist that was consecrated on Holy Thursday because Good Friday is the one day of the year in which you have no Mass. Uh, in all the world, there is not supposed to be a single Mass offered uh, on Good Friday. Uh, we receive communion, but it is consecrated the day before, and and uh, all our attention is on this veneration of the cross. So, yeah, we do uncover the cross, but we uncover it. Um, we uncover it in in uh, in that liturgical procession, and if we had the big cross uncovered. When we walked into church carrying the cross uh, and said, Behold the wood of the cross, people would look up, Which cross are we beholding here? That's the idea. So I hope that helps. This is one from Chris. Uh, thank in tech, I think in Texas. No, Minnesota again. Thank you. I have prayed the Our Father saying, Give us this day our daily bread. After hearing you say, Chew his body. All these years I was asking for a meal. Is praying... Give us this day our daily our daily bread, his flesh, the point. Um, well, again, thank you for your kind letter, Chris. But St. Jerome translated the Our Father from Greek as panem consubstantialum, our consubstantial bread. He seems to have been of the theory that it referred to the Eucharist, that the Eucharist was our daily bread. Because you see, the word in Greek in the Our Father is ton arton ton epiusion. Uh, epiusion, the only place in the history of the Greek language, as far as I know, where the word epiusion appears is in the Our Father. We have no example of it in any other language, to the best of my knowledge. For a while, they thought they had found it in a garbage dump of all places on a shopping list, that it simply meant the bread necessary for the day. But that has, I think, since been disproved uh, at least it certainly is not a, a proven citation. So the word epiusion means, uh, usia means existence, being. Uh, epi is upon, so upon being. And consubstantialum is a kind of Latin translation of that. Consubstantial. It's very difficult to interpret what the word epiusion really means. So you have both both translations the the uh, uh, the idea of daily bread uh, in the Our Father. Let me see. nostrum quotidianum. When we recite the Our Father in Latin, we don't use Saint Jerome's biblical translation because we were saying it for centuries before. Panem nostrum quotidianum. Quotidian. That's related to our word for quotient or or quotidian. That it means necessary for the day, and. I think it's a both and. It means the Holy Eucharist, which is the ultimate necessary bread, but it also means, uh, um, it also means uh, the uh, the bread we need simply to live. So, I don't know if that answers the question, but I'd go with both and. So, there you go. Okay, let's see here. Okay, hold on. I got to press buttons, and that's always fun. Um, oh, $5,000 for a computer, and it can't handle a simple assignment. 
Well, I I like that that one about press the any press any key. Where's the any key? And let's move along. All right, this is from Terry. Um, uh, in today's first reading, after Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, this. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. What, if any, is the significance of Philip being snatched away as his, as opposed to to going his own way and completing his trip to Gaza? Uh, thank you for all you... Well, that's a very kind commentary. Well, Terry, the Scripture says snatched away. I should probably look up that word in Greek, but the Scripture says uh, snatched away because Philip was snatched away. Um, I think this is history. Uh, you know, there's the thing about, they, was it uh, the draft of fish after the resurrection? That it says 153 fish, and people are, are constantly looking for the symbolic meaning. Uh, and why is it 153? Well, there are 153 nations in the world. According, no, because there were 153 fish. I, I don't know if you've known fishermen, if, and it says large ones. I mean... Uh, fishermen tend to make sure uh, um, that uh, you know what they caught. And I have a feeling that this Acts 8.39 is the verse to which you're, you're uh, that's the verse that you cited. And the word for snatch is harpazo. Uh, that, that, that literally means snatched. The harpies were these, the, were these mythical characters. They were called harpies and they they had talons of eagles and the faces of women, and they would just snatch something. And that's the word, harpazo. It means it means to snatch. It can even mean to obtain by robbery. So um, uh, it's to take by an open display of force. In other words, it's not it's not secret. They just grab it, and that that this was, I think. What happened? We we see stories of Padre Pio uh, uh, bilocating, and I think this may be an early, a very, the very earliest example of that kind of thing. Um, so um, uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I I, I hope it helps a little. So um, there you go. All right, let's see how are we doing time wise, dear voice in my head. Well, let's do another letter and. Um, this is a simple one. This is Susan from Sacramento. I would appreciate your recommending a good Catholic Bible for a friend of mine who's been Catholic all his life, but now is in hospice with terminal lung and heart illness. He asked me for a good Catholic Bible for him, along with a good Catholic book on death and dying. Oh, a good Catholic book on death and dying. Oh, there, there, there is one. I cannot think of it on, on, um, on, on, on how to die. Can you think of a dear voice in my head? Oh gosh, what, what is the best book that we have on death and dying? There was one that was published. Oh gosh, I, I can't think of it. Um, oh, it was published by, uh, was it Fulton Sheen? I don't know if Fulton Sheen published one or was it St. Alphonsus Liguri? I, it's a wonderful book and I cannot remember who wrote it. Scott, well, Scott Hahn, uh, yeah, this, well, let, uh, Scott Hahn is always good, so I, I have no hesitation recommending that book. Scott Hahn's uh, uh, Hope to, uh, hope to Die. Hope to uh, Die, The Christian Meaning, This is Live, of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. Yeah, I, I would recommend that wholeheartedly. And as for a Bible, 
Well, the the Catholic Study Bible is always a good one, but in this situation, I wouldn't recommend that. I would recommend Richard's, Richard Lattimore's New Testament that has no uh, verses. It, it doesn't break it up with verses. Uh, say that again. Oh, His Richmond, Richmond Lattimore. Not Richard. Richmond Lattimore's uh, New Testament. To read the Gospels without all of those little uh, markings in them is a very powerful thing. Uh, to read it as it was written. You know, chapters didn't come into the Bible until, oh, I want to say 200 A.D. Verses didn't come into the Bible until, oh, 1500, 1550 in the Geneva Bible, which was published by by the Calvinists of Geneva. So, uh, you know, the Bible is meant to flow one verse into the other, and sometimes we break it up into little segments. So the Catholic Study Bible is good. It's got good notes, but that's that is the Bible with commentary. And I would really recommend Richmond Lattimore's new translation of the New Testament, having him read the Gospels. So I hope that helps. Okay, we're going to take a break here. I hear music. We'll come back with a word of the day. And um, There you go. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, invites you to check out The Quest, a five-episode video series on discovering our purpose and living it with courage. Start watching The Quest for free at relevantradio.com quest. Oh, come, let us go back to God, go back to oh, God. Come on. Yes, go back to God. Let us go back. Let's go back to God. Welcome Come back. Um, it is, as you can imagine, time for our word of the day. I mentioned in the discourse on the readings about um, this idea of, of 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 dying for Christ, that we enter into a covenant in Mass. And I maintain that the Our Father is the contractual element of the covenant. Every covenant um, has a contractual element. I will do this, you will do this. I will, for the covenant with Israel, I will be your God, you will be my people. Um, and I maintain that the Our Father is, in a certain sense, the contractual element of, uh, of, of the covenant which is expressed on Calvary and the Mass. And one of the elements is Hallowed Be Thy Name. And Hello is, I guess, a very popular app, a Catholic app. I'm not talking about that app. In Latin, well, in Greek, it's uh, Hagiasteto, Hagios is holy. In Latin, it's Santificetur. And Hallow is an old-fashioned English word for holy. So may your name be held holy. Now, I'm always telling you that that when I when you see the word name in the scripture, it probably means authority. When I say to you, I come to you in the name of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, that means uh, I come with the authority of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And if I don't have a warrant and a little badge, I'm going to get in trouble doing that. So, the authority of the Lord may the may the authority of the the Lord be made holy, be sanctified. What can I do to make God's name, God's authority, any holier than it is? I, nothing. I can do nothing. So what, what can it possibly mean? 
when I live in absolute submission to the authority of God, I am showing to the world the holiness of God as demonstrated in my life, submitted and obedient and trusting in him. When a Jew talks about sanctifying the name, a Jew is talking about being killed because he's a Jew. Orthodox Judaism is completely, the goal is to be completely submitted to God by obeying scrupulously the 613 commandments of the law. And we can look at those commandments and we can say, what are those about? But it is a great noble thing. I have shared with you the story of the old Jewish man uh, who was Orthodox but did not believe in the survival of death. And you can be a perfectly good Jew and not believe in the survival of death. It isn't in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, most Orthodox Jews that I know believe in, in uh, life after death and the resurrection. But it is not required as a belief in Judaism. It is for us, but not in Judaism. And he observed the law scrupulously, and somebody asked him, you don't believe you're going to be judged? You're not going to stand before God and judge me? He said, no. When you die, that's it. He said, well, why do you obey the law so scrupulously? And the man just looked at him and said, because he's worthy. That's to sanctify the name. That no matter what happens to me, I will honor God, even if it means my own death. So when you say the Our Father, <laughs> you say the Rosary, you say it five times. When you go to Mass, you say it right before Holy Communion. You're saying, Lord, I will live for you. And if need be today, I will die for you. That's big. That's what it means to hallow the name of God. So, well, there you go. Let's let us go back to letters. Um, this letter is from Miranda. Why did God allow the devil in the form of the serpent in the garden? Oh, this is an old theme, and but it's one of my favorites. The world is not perfect. It is not supposed to be perfect. The Garden of Eden was not perfect. It wasn't supposed to be perfect. What? I thought it was it was heaven. No, it wasn't heaven. It was a place where human beings were given the choice to the chance to choose heaven. Uh, I, I learned this as I learned so much from Rabbi Lefkowitz. He pointed out that the creation was not perfect, that God said on every day of the week when he created, it was evening and morning, the fifth day, God saw what he had made and it was good. He doesn't say that on the second day. The second day is not good. Because God separated the waters in heaven from the waters on earth. And we read in the Gospel of John that, that uh, Jesus said, Rivers of living water will flow from the one who believes in me. He was referring to the Holy Spirit, but there was no Holy Spirit as yet. In other words, there was no Holy Spirit in the world because he had not gone to Calvary and risen from the dead. Uh, so the, the waters in heaven and the waters on earth are about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in heaven. He hovered over the waters, but the waters of creation refer to the human spirit. There was a separation between the divine spirit and the human spirit in the very beginning. And that's why the second day is not good. And think about it. Seven is the perfect number in Hebrew thought. It is the a combination of four and three. Three is the number of heavenly perfection. Four is the number of earthly perfection. So that's what those numbers mean when you see them in the Bible, four and three. Well, seven is the perfect number. God didn't create the world in seven days. He created it in six. 
And St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that the creation, I think in the eighth chapter, the creation was made subject to futility by the one who subjected it. So the world was created imperfectly. And when we get this idea that while the world is supposed to be perfect and my spouse is supposed to be perfect and my children is supposed to be perfect and my pastor is supposed to be perfect and the Pope is supposed to be perfect. Guess what? They live in this world. All of the above people, including you, who rarely demand perfection from yourself. At least I don't demand it from me. So this idea of 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 perfection in the world, and you better be perfect and do everything I think you should, to expect from a human being what you can only get from God is idolatry. Perfection resides only in God and not in the world as it is now. There is a seventh day. On that day, he rested from all his labors, and that seventh day is the perfect day, and we will enter into that seventh day when God's grace prevailing and heaven willing, we go to heaven. But the world is imperfect, so God allowed and allows the devil to roam about in this imperfect world, helping us to make the decision for God and helping us to choose God I remember an old gospel song, there's two kinds of people in this world, God's children and the devil's children. And uh, uh, you may ask, uh, when will everything be okay? Just as soon as my feet touch Zion. Lord, I won't have trouble no more. That's a wonderful old gospel song. Uh, I can hear it in my, my, my brain. All right, moving along. Uh, so that's why the devil was allowed to be in the Garden of Eden, because it was not a perfect place. And, oh, bother, this is someone suggesting that I, I write a book called the Rabbi, and, the Rabbi and the Rector. I was never a rector. I was only a curate <laughs> pastor. The, so, uh, and besides, who's got time to write books? The Bible says of the writing of books, there is no end. But that's a thought. Uh, maybe I can write a short article on, I don't know where I'd publish it, on, on uh, things I learned from the rabbi. Everyone should have a good rabbi. Okay. Okay. This is um, uh, um, a letter from Teresa in L.A. about, this is, oh, this is a while ago. Um, this was April 18th. Uh, Hello, Father Simon. Can you explain why Ananias and Sapphira died? How is it that they did not follow through in donating all the money from the, for the sake of their property. Was it punishment because they didn't trust in the apostles to give uh, to give them all of their money? Thank you. And uh, uh, Teresa answers her own question. I researched a bit more about Acts 5 and found some more insight after my first question to you on Bible Hub. They wish to serve two masters, but to appear to serve only one. That's a good answer. Uh, but I also think that... We get upset with God for being so strict. <laughs> I just, I just heard some priest talking about how any any vision in which um, uh, God threatens punishment or the visionary threatens punishment can't possibly be an authentic vision of the Lord because God would never do that. This is clearly a priest who's never bothered to read the Bible because the Old Testament is full of visionaries who say if you don't straighten up and fly right, there's disaster coming. And our Lord and Savior, uh, you know, that guy with the beard and the sandals, he, he, woe to you, Chorison, woe to you, Bethsaida. He was, he woed people a lot. And so I was amused that this priest, 
um, is so unaware of, of Scripture that he's essentially saying Scripture is full of false prophecies. God, you know, in a sense, I think one can say that God doesn't punish people. He allows us to suffer the consequences of our sins. Seriously. You know, God, in his mercy, withholds the consequence of our sins that we might repent. But there are times when our refusal to repent sort of tells the Lord, you got to lower, I got to lower the boom. You know, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were completely unrepentant and sin is death. So they, 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 in a sense, killed themselves and God allowed what was going on in their spirits to manifest itself. And I think he did that at the beginning of this, of this enterprise for the same reason that he allowed uh, uh, the soldier of David uh, who was trying to steady the ark. Uh, there's a wonderful story in the Old Testament, uh, which I don't know if you've, you've seen it, about a soldier uh, who, who tried to steady the Ark of the Covenant as, uh, um, uh, as it was falling off of a wagon. Uh, and he dropped dead because only priests and Levites... Uh, were allowed to steady or to touch the Ark of the Covenant. It's an amazing thing. It's Second uh, Samuel six six uh, six six. Let me pull that up because I think it's fascinating. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, I've, I've got it, I've got it, not to worry. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark. Uzzah was a soldier of David because the oxen had stumbled, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there because of the ark of God. Then David became angry because the Lord had burst burst forth against Uzzah. So he named the place Perez Uzzah, it is called to this day. Uzzah was this soldier. You understand what David was doing? David was bringing the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem and this is my theory, a harebrained theory. Take it with, get ready, a grain of salt. But David was taking the Ark of the Covenant. I didn't hear the salt shaker. Will I hear the salt shaker? I will. There you go. All right. Uh, take it with a grain of salt. It's just my theory. But I, I think there's something to it. David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the same reason that Constantine the Great brought all of these relics into Constantinople. He wanted it to become the religious capital of his empire. Now, uh, Constantine might have done it with more sincerity because David was really trying to use the Ark of God, I think, in a rather cynical way. Priesthood and uh, uh, monarchy were completely separated in Israel. The, the, the sacrificers, <laughs> the, the, the sacrificer priests uh controlled the temple and the king controlled the palace and there was this balance of authority well in the ancient world kings were priests and priests were kings and kings were gods and they were immortal and they offered priestly sacrifices and lo and behold uh you didn't disobey the king because he was god that never was true for israel uh that was that was there was the separation well david was in danger of 
arrogating the priestly, the heretic function, the priestly function to himself. And so God struck him because you don't use the things of God for your own political or social advantage. And that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They wanted to look good in the community. And so they gave all their money, kept a bunch for themselves. But, oh, it's all our money. We're, we're, we're holy. And at the beginning of the enterprise, God wanted people to know that this was serious business. That's my take on Ananias and Sapphira. So that's an excellent question. Um, uh, so read the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the Acts of the Apostles. And you can read Second Samuel, the sixth chapter, to hear about uh, what what David's going on. So uh, what's going on with David? All right. This Good is rather grief. long. Exactly. So I'll try and get to the question. Hello, Father. I never listened to your show, but I saw you were a priest all my life. I could not listen to conservative radio. Two weeks ago, I listened to about 10 minutes of a show. He had a guest talking about uh, how transgender is the new religion of the left. Do you see? Look, why don't you see the sin? If you don't see the sins, it's time to pray. Who are the left? And how, how many did this person talk to come to this conclusion? At Relevant Radio, we do not espouse one political party or another, and we, we don't talk politics. But there are some times when one political party or another will espouse uh, what we believe to be morally wrong. And we denounce the, the sin, not the party. There are lots of Republicans who think that, that uh, to mutilate a child is fine, and lots of Democrats who think it isn't. It isn't a one-party issue. But it is very clear the Catholic Church believes that mutilation is morally wrong. That uh, um, to to and it's been a, we've been a long time coming to this conclusion. We by mutilation it means to to cut off part of your body for. Uh, aesthetic reasons. Now, admittedly, there are surgeries in which parts of the body are removed. We just really believe that what the scripture says is true. He created the male and female. You can't undo it. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about this party or that party. Uh, it does seem that, you know, that idea of the left, where does that come from? It comes, I believe, from the French parliament in times past that there was uh uh, the gauche and the droite, that, that, that sitting on either side of the hall and looking at the hall, that the more progressive types sat on the left and the more conservative types sat on the right. That's where those terms come from. We are essentially conservative. We're not essentially Republican or Democrat in the Catholic Church. We are essentially conservative because God told us to care for the garden. We're, we're supposed to be people who care for the garden. People think Adam and Eve had nothing to do but loll about and and uh and watch reruns in the in the garden of paradise. No, they were they were commanded to to care for the garden. That command has never been rescinded. We're supposed to guard it. And so we look at what God has given and we try to guard it. It has nothing to do with political parties. At least it doesn't with me. So I hope that that's helpful. And uh, of course, Drew's coming up and he's always helpful. He will pray with you. Good stuff. 